The Evolution of Calpurnia Tate, Chapter 16, The Telephone Comes. Although some species may now in Although some species may now increasing more or less rapidly in numbers, all cannot do so, for the world would not hold them. Change was coming, both on the small stage of my life and the larger one of our town. The Bell Telephone Company had run a line all the way from Austin to the county seat in Lockhart, and one could now perform the astonishing feat of talking over the thin strand of wire to a man 30 miles away, or to be precise, shouting at him. The interaction was reputed to be noisy. 20 years earlier, the journey to Austin had taken three days by wagon. 10 years earlier, it was half a day by train. Now the message could be delivered in the time it took a man to draw a breath. There was much debate about where the switchboard and the telephone, there was only one, should go. Some thought the gin, since it was the center of commerce. Others said the post office, but our mayor, Mr. Axelrod, ruled that it should go to the newspaper, the beating informational heart of our community. The newspaper office was right across the street from the gin, and so the apparatus could be used when needed to receive cotton orders and check market prices. Granddaddy grew excited about the phone and had an extra spring in his step when he went out collecting specimens. By God, he said, progress is a wonderful thing. That boy, Alex, had done it. By God. Alex, I said, you mean Mr. Bell? I do mean him, he said, the very one. Um, I said, you know him? A good boy, known him for years through the geographic. I'm surprised I haven't told you. I loaned him some money when he was starting out and he gave me some stock in his company. Remind me to check the ticker next time I'm in Austin. Those shares might be worth something by now. And then he said, and then he said, by God, I can telephone the exchange and get the quote. No need to go to Austin. Ha! Our town talked of nothing else for a week. The Bell Company placed an advertisement in the Fentress Indicator announcing that it would hire a telephone operator and that this person had to be dependable, sober, industrious lady, young lady, between the ages of 17 and 24. Apparently, the company had had plenty of bad experiences with the earlier operators, who had all been recruits from the ranks of telegraph men, a rough lot and prone to drunkenness, rudeness, and disconnecting patrons. The advertisement also stipulated that the young lady had to be tall, setting off all kinds of speculation, both polite and otherwise. It also offered room and board and the stunning sum of $10 a week to top this off for a girl, not a wagoneer, not a blacksmith, but a girl. And indoor work at that, this was unheard of. The money, the prestige, the independence, I burned for the position. I asked my handiest brother, JB, don't you think I look 17? 
he looked at me and spoke gravely, gravely through a thick mouthful of wet toffee. You look real old, Callie. This pleased me. But then when I was only five years old, so it wasn't, he was only five years old, so it wasn't exactly reliable information. I went and found Harry in the barn where he was mending a harness. Harry, I said, do you think I could pass for 17? Have you lost your mind, he said without looking up. No, look, what if I do this? I held up my hair up in what I imagined were attractive bunches above my ears. Don't I look 17? He glanced at me. You look like a spaniel. The answer is no. Then he stopped his mending and squinted at me. Why? What are you up to? Oh, nothing. I had for a fleeting moment seen myself as Miss Tate, girl operator, dressed in a smart shirtwaist dress, perched on a rolling stool, connecting each call with great efficiency and presence of mind, and saying in a well-modulated voice, hello, central number, please. I was even willing to lie about my age and borrow a dress and a hat from mother's dressing room for in the face of such potential magnificence. I had it all worked out when suddenly the obvious flashed on me. Half the town knew me by name and the other half by sight. What kind of idiot was I? I thanked the Lord for showing me the stupidity of my ridiculous and dangerous proposition in time, but still. On the big day, a dozen of our tall and not so tall young ladies presented themselves in the soberest hats, clutching letters of reference to their chest, cleanest white gloved, in their cleanest white gloves. They lined up along the raised wooden boardwalk in front of the newspaper office and stood for hours, some of them straining on tiptoe. When they went inside, they were mad to stand with their backs. To, they were made to stand with their backs to the wall and have the distance between their fingertips measured. It turned out that they needed someone with long arms who could plug in connections the length of the switchboard. At the end of the day, they announced that Miss, excuse me, Honaria Goats. <clears throat> from Staples would be our new telephone operator. There was considerable grumbling about this. She was tall, yes, and maybe she had long arms, but there were plenty of fine young ladies in Fentress. Were there not? It was the Fentress Telephone Company, was it not? We hired a foreigner from Staples four miles away. Would she take the room and board or drive herself daily? And if so, how would she manage in bad weather? And on and on. Honaria Goats and her tin trunk arrived two days later and were placed in a tiny room the size of a closet containing the switchboard and a cot so that she could answer the phone at any hour of the day and night. Her meals were be to, be to be brought to her from Elsie Bell's rooming house down the street. Such extravagance was unprecedented. In any such event, it turned out not to matter that Honaria was from Staples or that she had long arms. What the company didn't know about her, but the rest of us did, was that her uncle, 
Homer Ray goats had been struck by lightning while plowing and had been found in the field charred and smoking lightly by Honaria herself. Mr. Goats lived but lost most of his hearing and had to tote a huge ear trumpet about with him from then on. He also became prone to sudden fits of hilarious laughter over nothing, which, while disconcerting, nevertheless made him entertaining company. Poor Honaria had lived in mortal fear of electricity ever since, and who in her shoes would not? So, when faced with having to plug her first line into the board with the supervisor at her shoulder to teach her, she shrieked and fled the building, no doubt expecting to be fired, no doubt expecting to be fried like her uncle by some satanic spark leaping through the wires. She stumbled across the bridge, not even stopping for her things, and ran all the way home to Staples in teary disgrace. Her father sent for her trunk the following day. Maggie Medlin, Becky Medlin's great niece, was hired to take her place. Maggie was shorter than Honoria, but sturdier of disposition. Her abhorrent younger sister, Dovey, basked in Maggie's reflected glory and took to beginning, to, be, to beginning every sentence with, well, my sister, the operator, says... We all hated her for it. Finally, the bell company made the bell company men made it out to Fentress, and the great day came for the opening of the telephone line. The company's representative arrived on the train from Austin. There wasn't room to hold the ceremony inside the newspaper office itself, so we gathered on the street outside. The Odd Fellows brass band played a short selection. The Moose band played at length, and the International Woodmen of the World, the band with the fewest members, went on forever. The mayor and the company man made long, boring speeches about this great day. Mayor Axelrod cut a wide ribbon with a fake oversized cardboard scissors to officially open the telephone company in Fentress. Cheers went up, hands were shaken, and free lemonade and lager were passed around. Sam Houston tried to <clears throat> catch a beer and was properly rebuffed. And then at noon, on the dot, it happened. A shrill, jaggling noise rang out in the breathless, expectant air. The crowd gasped <gasps> and oohed, ooh. On the line was our state senator in Austin calling to congratulate our town. As we hurtled towards the 20th century, Maggie Medlin connected the line, and our mayor stepped into the cl closet and yelled at our senator, who yelled back at him from 45 miles away, giving him the morning's price for cotton in the Austin Exchange. Granddaddy murmured to me, Do you realize what this means, Calpurnia? The day of whale oil and coal dust are over. The old century is dying. Even as we watch, remember this day. Mr. Hoffacket of Hoffacket's Portrait Parlor, fine for photographs for fine occasions, was there with a big bellows camera to memorialize the day. He wanted to talk to Granddaddy about the plant and was disappointed that we still hadn't heard back. He'd have grabbed, gab, he'd have gabbed about it all day, except the mayor, Axelrod, pulled him back 
to his duties as official photographer. We crowded around, spilling off the boardwalk and into the streets. Mr. Hoffackett set up his camera. Granddaddy gripped my hand. Then Mr. Hoffackett ducked under his black veil and held up his magnesium flash powder. Don't move, cried Mr. Hoffackett as we all froze. Mr. Hoffackett's power lit up lit us up like summer lightning and caught us for that one second in time. When we later saw a copy of the photograph, most of the faces were solemn and severe. I looked pensive. The only smiling face was that of Granddaddy, grinning away like the Cheshire cat.